Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Beth. Wonderful. What a, what a passage. If you are just joining us for the first time, my name is Maffey. I serve as the pastor here at CCC, and you are really, really welcome. And uh, let me pray before we get into, uh, in, into this tricky passage. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray that it would bless, uh, bless us as we hear it. And we thank you in advance for, the, for the, the preaching of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak to us. You would reveal your heart to us. And that this would be for the good of us, for the good of our church congregation, for the good of Dublin City, and ultimately for your glory in your name. Amen. Amen. So morality... Uh, church discipline, uh, standards about sex, all things many modern people will say should be left in 20th century Ireland. Even to modern day churchgoers, uh, church discipline seems strange and it sounds wrong. Uh, given all the failures of the institutional church, including the evangelical churches, shouldn't this sort of thing uh, be just left in the past? I mean, there's no denying the the oppression, the pain, and the suffering that many people have experienced uh, through heavy-handedness, through bullying, intimidation, all in the name of discipline. But my hope today is, rather than removing church discipline from the agenda altogether, we actually serve to redeem it. So I don't have a clicker, so whoever's on here, you have a, ah, here we go, wonderful. There we go, Here, here we go. This is my prayer for us as a church today. This is what I want to see God do in, in and through us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Nothing can be more cruel 
than the leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. That's in his little book, Life Together, page 105. This is what we're going to see in the church in Corinth today. We're going to consider why we need church discipline and then how we can apply it. So this is the direction we're going today. We're going to see that uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's been a report of immorality. We're going to hear about the reaction of the church to that immorality. We're then going to see what Paul's response was uh, to the church's reaction. And Paul is going to give a couple of reasons as to why he has said this. And then we're going to reflect a little bit uh, together on what this means for CCC. All right, here we go. There's been a report of immorality which invites ridicule from the world. So over the past six weeks, we've heard Paul addressing issues of pride and division uh, within the church. And he's heard reports from Chloe's household of various issues. And if you were here a few weeks ago, Chloe also got a mention, and here she is again. Either Chloe is a a godly and a brave woman, or else she's what's known as a tout, where I'm from. Anyway, the church uh, has has engaged in in some form of uh, sexual immorality through this man. We're going to hear about it. Paul has just heard about it. Verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. A man is in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. The Greek word used for immorality is pornea, where we derive our English word porn or pornography from. The word pornea often appears in the New Testament sin lists, but it's not because Christians had a whole lot of hang-ups about sex, but rather in the area of sex, the ethics of the Greek culture of the day stood so much at odds with the ethics of Jesus that this is why Paul is, is, is going to town on this. And I mean, as, as I say this, I, I recognize there may be some of you in this room who will have experienced an, uh, 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 some form of sexual abuse at the hands of, of others. It may not be you directly, it may be in your family. This may uh, be quite close to home uh, for you. And what, what, what I want to say is, is that God can absolutely redeem this. He absolutely can. But this may be painful. And so I, I want to say there may be some triggers uh, throughout this talk. In the ESV version, in verse 1, uh, it says a man has his father's wife. In other words, they're in a sexual relationship. And even if it's not biological, it's still incest. And what he's saying is that this is something even the pagans don't do. I mean, everyone knows about it. The church knows about it. The word is spread in the city. The city knows about it. Paul is appalled, and the watching world is appalled by this. So immorality in the church was inviting ridicule from outside the church. And in in the ancient world, the Roman orator Cicero, uh, like, uh, what, uh, 2,100-odd years ago, said incest was virtually unheard of in Roman society. So not only the Romans... But the Jews also had serious high standards when it came to sexual morality. But among the Greeks, promiscuity was completely commonplace. And now in the church is a type of practice that even the pagans don't stand for. In 1997, news broke that one of Hollywood's legends, Woody Allen, had an affair with his longtime partner's adopted daughter. His longtime partner was Mia Farrow, and, and Mia adopted a, a, an Asian 
girl who's around 10 years old called Sun Yi. And Woody Allen later went on to have an affair with her and then he married her. And it was a scandal that broke out across Hollywood and the States that his reputation has never truly recovered from. Many saw it as a case of child exploitation, of sexual abuse. His reputation has never fully recovered from it. Even the pagans know this is not a good idea. But yet, worse yet, let's look at chapter or verse 2, the reaction of the church. Let's see how they respond to it. Verse 2, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? They're proud, and Paul's reaction is to be appalled by the reaction of the church. Now, scholars debate whether the church were proud because of their sin or in spite of their sin. I mean, if the church is proud because of their sin, then it's likely that they were abusing God's grace. They had a distorted view of Christian freedom and they thought that they could, they could kind of do what they want. Or they were proud in spite of their sin, which I, I think is probably more likely because they were allowing things to slide in the church that should have been dealt with. Their pride left them willfully blind and careless to their own sin in their community. Paul was saying, guys, do not dare be proud of your church. If church discipline needs to be done, it is not being done. Rather, you should be so filled with grief. And you might be saying, Mafia, yeah, that makes sense. But let me tell you, this rubs against the grain of our individualistic culture. Our Western culture values moral individualism. And moral individualism says, I'm only responsible for what I do myself. In other words, I know someone has done something wrong, but I don't get involved. It's not my responsibility. At a previous job, I sat in a canteen one afternoon, probably three or four stories above the ground, and I was watching the cars uh, come in and out of the staff car park when I suddenly noticed one car uh, pull in and they drove into a parking space. And for anybody that drives, we all know you do not drive into a parking space. But nonetheless, drove into the parking space and in doing so, they rubbed up against the rear quarter panel, the rear door, the front door and the wing of the car next to them. And worse yet, they stopped, they backed out, they moved to another parking space and they got parked. So I saw it, a few other people saw it. And I ended up, finished my lunch, went down to the security desk to report it. And the security guard would not accept my report, even though I had the car registrations, without another witness to verify it. So I went up, I went back upstairs, and I tried to get some of the other lads that saw it. And none of them were willing to come down. None of them were willing to verify it. And one person actually said, I'll never forget it, he said, no, I'm not touting on someone else. Moral individualism says, I know that that's wrong, but it's not my responsibility to get involved. And let me tell you, if this is the case in the church, then discipline will never get dealt with. If this is the case in the church, then discipline will never get dealt with. You know, in practice, when there's someone in our church family who is having sex with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, or a fellow church member on a, on a sports team who just simply cannot control their anger week in and week out. Or a church member who's repeatedly getting drunk. And you say, no, I, I don't want to get involved. It's not my place. So, somebody else can. It's, it's not for me. What we're actually doing is letting the culture into the church rather than taking the church out into the culture. 
You're being controlled by our cultural narrative rather than the biblical narrative. And so the Corinthian church's reaction is one of pride rather than sorrow. So it isn't, it isn't merely a personal matter, but it's a whole assembly matter. It's a whole church failure. So Paul has uh, given the, given the we've heard about direction. Now he gives his response to their immorality. And what is his response? It's to exercise church discipline, verses three to five. Now, before we get to verse five, let's make a note. Three and four is trying to tell us that, that Paul wants their verdict on this incest to match his own. He wants the church to express publicly what he's already expressed personally in this letter. And again, it's an assembly-wide failure. Paul is addressing the whole church here, not just the incestuous man in question. So his report, or his response to the report of immorality is to exercise church discipline. And then this is where verse five comes in, a real tricky one. Verse five, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What on earth? First thing, this word for flesh in the original language could either mean physical flesh or sinful nature. Um, it's, it's used uh, for, for either or. It's unlikely in this case to be physical flesh because it would then read, hand him over to Satan so he may physically die and his spirit saved. I think it's more likely to be, hand him over to Satan so his sinful nature may be put to death and his spirit saved. But what does it mean then to hand him over to Satan? Well, we need to consider the purpose of exercising church discipline. The purpose of discipline in the church is to soften this man's heart. Removing him from the church is a wake-up call to him. So to be, to be outside of the church is to be in the world in the dominion of Satan. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. Hand him over to Satan, i.e. remove him from the church family. Remove him from membership. And this is the purpose, is to soften his heart so that he, he may see what it is that he has done wrong. But this is critical. The motive of church discipline is love. It may well be that you have been hurt by the church in the past. And if so, it may well be that what the church wasn't doing when it came to discipline was doing it from a place of love. The motive of church discipline is love for the person in question, for the, for the church, for the watching world, and for Christ. And the desired result of church discipline is restoration. That the person might live fully and freely and joyfully in obedience to Jesus. In another letter, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, in a, in a similar case, he's saying, take special note of anyone who does not, not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So what he's saying is to the, to the Thessalonians, put them out. When you put him out, don't, don't treat him as, as an enemy, but rather counsel him as a brother. Doing church discipline is not here to hurt the person, but to hurt the sin in the person. And discipline isn't a judicial act, but rather it's a communal act. So it's not judicial, judicial but it's a communal act. So what does that mean then in practice? What does that look like here in CCC? I mean, if, if you've been to Belong before, which is our version of church membership, then you have heard this already. 
the two key passages on church discipline are in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Matthew 18 tells us about the informal and ongoing approach to church discipline, which we might call accountability in the life of, of, of the Christian community. So Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, whenever a brother or sister has sinned, we speak to them directly. We go one-to-one -one, uh, to them. And, and if, they, if they don't repent or they don't respond well, then we, we bring in somebody else. We bring somebody else with us who can verify this or corroborate it. And then if they still don't respond well, then we take it to the whole church. But the idea is that the brother or sister in question is won over in this relational process that happens over a period of time. So that's the first approach. The second approach is where we are at today with 1 Corinthians 5. It tells us the final formal steps in the serious cases whenever the person remains unrepentant after much time and discussion. And guys, our hope and prayer is that if we are practicing Matthew 18 really well, we will rarely, if ever, have to practice 1 Corinthians 5. And so whenever it comes to confronting people, when it comes to exercising church discipline, there should be no rush. We should not rush into this. And it must not be done lightly. It must not be done carelessly. It's an ongoing conversation. And it's certainly not nitpicking. Certainly not looking for sin. And guys, we, we will do so well to remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever, whenever he said, before going to somebody else, look for the what? Look for the plank in your own eye before taking a speck out of somebody else's. Paul summarizes this process really well in Galatians 6 verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught on a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So within the context of the gospel, church discipline is compassionate warning. It's compassionate warning. It's a way of saying to the person, if you continue on down this path, there is a greater judgment to come if, if you remain unrepentant. And it's important to hear this, that the only sin that can lead to you being put out of the church membership is unrepentant sin. It's the unwillingness to repent. So the response to the whole church is that they carry out church discipline, and this is going to involve removing the man in question from their membership. And now Paul goes on to give his reasons. The redemptive work of Christ. You would think at this point, Paul would zoom in on the individual's immorality, and Paul would take the Word of God, he would take the Old Testament, that's all they had at the time, and he would pull out an appropriate verse and he would apply it. But Paul doesn't zoom in. Instead, he zooms out. He takes a wide-angle lens of the matter. And he reminds him of the Exodus story. How God commanded uh, the Israelites to leave Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And they were doing it in the dark of night. And, and before they were to go, they were to bake bread for the journey. But they were to break bread for the journey with no yeast in it. Yeast is an agent of change. And if they were to wait for the bread to rise and then take it out, it would probably be too late. So they were to bake bread for the journey, put no yeast in it. They were to bail. So when Israel then, years later, celebrated the Passover, whenever they looked back and saw that God, what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt, they would have went and cooked and ate bread without leaven or without yeast as a reminder of what God had done. So if you've got a Bible, look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. 
Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Old leaven is figurative for their sinful ways before Christ, whereas new, new lump or new leaven is figurative for their identity in Christ. So let me read that again. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the old ways of life so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you already are. As Israel was set free from Egypt as a result of what, what God had done, they were to, uh, to make a clean break from the oppressor. And so we who are followers of Jesus today are to be totally separated from our old way of life with, it, with its sinful attitudes, with its standards, with its habits. Romans 6.19 says, Christ died to separate us from the bondage of sin and give us a new bondage to righteousness, which is the only true freedom. Andrew Wilson, uh, in his commentary, 1 Corinthians for you, says this so well. The expulsion of this man is not only aimed at destroying what is fleshly within him, but also at destroying what is fleshly within the Corinthian church and saving that which is spiritual among them. In other words, this man's sin has the potential not just to destroy him, but the entire congregation. And this is why church discipline is not only commanded, but it's also deeply beneficial. It's beneficial to serve to rescue the person. And in the moment, it's painful. In the moment, it's humbling, but it also matures us. A number of years ago, I lost my driving license. I came out of a court, courtroom just having had a, a driving ban. And I went immediately, I didn't go to mom and dad, didn't go to my girlfriend, didn't go anywhere, I actually just went to my church elder. And I went to his house and he put an arm around me. And I said to him what, what had happened. And, uh, and again, he took me under his arm. He was kind, he was gentle, I, I repented and we prayed. It was a painful moment. And there was, there was discipline that was carried out as a result that, that, that served to, to bring me back. And let me tell you this, you know that you're maturing in Christ. Whenever your sin has become so deeply offensive and so gross, not only to God, but to you also, when it deeply humbles and thrusts you into his arms of grace. So it's to serve to rescue the person, but it's also to protect the wider church. You know, if sin isn't dealt with, then like the yeast, it's going to spread. Israel, whenever they got to the promised land, began to enjoy sin, and they allowed it to infect and lead them into idolatry. And here's the thing, here's the reason why I went to my elder. It was because I was leading the equivalent of a city group. I was preaching once a month, and I was leading one or two services a month. I had a public platform in the church, and all of a sudden, the next week, in the newspaper was going to be a, a small article, a small write-up about, about me, my name, losing a license. The church's integrity was at risk because of me. So I offered to step back from, from everything. You know, we will only begin to tolerate continuing sin in other people whenever we've first begun to tolerate it in ourselves. Whenever the beauty of the gospel of grace fades from our eyes and, and from our heart, we're going to be less concerned 
for the beauty and the purity of God's church and more concerned about the self-preservation of our sin-loving lives. The reason why discipline is necessary is because of the redemptive work of Christ for the rescue of the individual and to protect the church. So let me wrap this up with some reflections. I'm going to see some reflections based on verses 9 to 13. The first one, we are expected to be in the world with unbelievers. You see, we are expected to be in the world with unbelievers. Verse 9 and 10. And you know, there's two pitfalls that we must avoid. One is that we, we, we separate away from the world. We become the, the, the frozen chosen, so to speak. The type of Christian with a stiff upper lip, happy to look down her nose at others, happy to pass judgment on unbelievers. And typically these are from or these are more seen in conservative, white, middle-class backgrounds, all of which I, I fall into. The temptation is to separate or to withdraw from society. But there's another pitfall is that we assimilate. The other pitfall is wishy-washy Christianity, where our lives look little different to the lives of, uh, of the unbelievers that live around us. The temptation is to assimilate and just to become like society. And here's the thing, we're not called to be balanced. We're not called to be balanced. We're called to be distinctive in society through Christ-centered values. We're to be radically engaged in the world, yet radically distinct from the world. So we are expected to be mixing in the world with unbelievers. Uh, judgment of those outside the church is God's job and not ours. Second, verse 12 and 13. Judgment of unbelievers is God's prerogative and it's God's alone. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. Thirdly, church discipline or, or judgment is to be exercised in the community of faith, not in the world. You know, for too long the church has got this wrong. For too long the church has got this wrong. We end up judging the world and those in it while giving our own community, while giving our own church, giving our own fellow Christians a free pass. Church discipline is to be exercised in the community of faith, not in the world. And fourthly, judgment on, the, on those on the inside, so believers, is our job. So while God judges those on the outside, we're called to pass judgment on those on the inside. But how are we to do it? We're to do it lovingly. We're to be gentle. We're actually to have their best interests at heart, not our own. And we're to check ourselves. We're to make sure that we don't have a plank in our own eye, or at least if we do have a plank in our own eye, we're to remove that first before we try to address a speck in the other person's eye. We're to repent ourselves first and foremost. We're to do it. We're, we're to exercise church discipline as fellow weak family members who depend on a strong Christ. And then finally, removal from the membership means a loss of intimate fellowship. You know, belonging to the local church was so important to followers of Christ back in the day. That to be put out of membership, to be removed or excommunicated, meant being unable to share an intimate fellowship any longer. Belonging to a local church should be so important to us that we should we should highly prize and value deep, rich fellowship with one another. That, that, if, that if there was unrepentant sin in our lives and we were put out, it would be so deeply painful 
that would cause us to consider why, why is it that they have taken such a serious stance? It is possible that, that I'm in sin. And, and this is the reason for putting them out. And listen, as I finish, I want to come back to Woody Allen all over again. Woody Allen, years later in an interview, when asked about his relationship with his stepdaughter, he replied with these words, the heart wants what the heart wants. I kid you not, this is what Woody said in an interview. The heart wants what the heart wants. Whenever he was asked as, as to why and how on earth did you end up in a sexual relationship with your stepdaughter? And let me say this, this is not only true of Woody Allen, but this is also true of you and I. The heart wants what the heart wants. And I say that because none of us deserve to be in the church. And none of us are guaranteed to remain in the church all our lives. But here's the reason why we can. It's because of what Jesus has done. Jesus experienced a loss of intimate fellowship with the Father on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. We have got all the resources at our disposal to follow Christ and to be part of this, this radically distinct community here in Dublin. And it's all because of what Christ has done. So we do not deserve to be in this community on the basis of our own merits, on the basis of our good works, or on the basis of trying to stay clean and good. Not at all. We are here because of what Christ has done. And so whenever it comes to church discipline, we point them back to Christ. Because it is because of what Christ has done that has enabled them to be part of the church in the first place. And it is only because of what Christ has done that will enable them and you and I to remain and to continue in fellowship as the church. So listen, would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray. And I'd love to invite the band back up. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we recognize that your word is tough. And it is difficult. It is hard to understand at times. And, and it, even, it even seems severe. But Lord, it's so evident that you love your church. And Lord, we thank you for the, the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and for the words that he's written. It says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to sin. Father, I pray that you would make us courageous not to abandon others to sin. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from fear whenever it would be so much easier just to be lenient with sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Father, I pray that we would be courageous in this area as well. That we would be so deeply compassionate and so deeply loving that we cannot help but bring people back. And so, Father, I pray that if there are moments in which there is a severe reprimand needed, that you would give us the courage, you'd give us the strength, and you'd give us the wisdom to know how to deal with these things. And I pray, Father, that we would so deeply value and prize your church
which you have bought with your blood on the cross, that we would be concerned for being holy, for becoming like you, for being so set apart from anything else in society and so radically different that those in Dublin would look at us and see that there is something that we have that they need. And so, Father, I pray that you would purify us, you would draw us back to you, you would fill us afresh, and you would send us out this week. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.